The sound of rolling luggage on cobblestone. That old ostinato soundtrack that was, before lockdown at least, practically the national anthem of half of Western Europe. It's been a little over 40 years since a Northwest Airlines pilot named Bob Plath, in a moment of inspiration, jammed wheels on a standing suitcase like chocolate into peanut butter and created the first rollerboard. And eventually it led to where we are here, an Airbnb before COVID, just outside of Porto, Portugal, where my old friend, the photojournalist Eduardo Leal, is telling me about how the Rodinias, the rolling luggage people, changed his hometown. We have three episodes here in Porto, and it seems natural to start by talking about tourism. Yeah, there's no tourism right now, but it will be back. I did some volunteer shifts at New York City's vaccination pods last week, and the main thing that me and those lucky people in the vaccine lines talked about was where we would visit first when it was safe. But for all the thirst we need to know, the travel should be better when we get back to it. It was not always working for the world. In the before times, it flooded and warped the town of Porto in ways that Eduardo knows better than most. See, Eduardo is from here, but he left, like the Portuguese have been doing for millennia to find his fortune outside his native country. I actually first met him out yonder in South America. He started his international photojournalism career by shooting for Roads and Kingdoms in Venezuela, and I traveled and worked with him in Brazil in Petropolis and Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. But here in my time in Porto, he is both host and guest from this place, but no longer of it. In this episode, we're talking about all that, about the changing city, his life and career, and about those mountains of cheese and meat they call Francesinhas. Before we get into that, though, just one thing about those rolling bags for when we are lucky enough to travel again. A little plea, a, a simple, sane request. For God's sakes, roll those things on pavement or concrete or asphalt, tarmac, bamboo, bitumen. But do not, when the sun is softly swanning between two bell towers in the old city of Porto, and the white wine is arriving by the carafe at a small metal table lining the alley, do not roll that fucking thing down the middle of the cobblestone street. If you do, you will be a Rodinha, and that we will not forgive. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. I think we should open this wine. The other one. Yeah, your wine. Yeah. No, sorry. I'm, I'm actually I'm looking at this Airbnb uh, here in Porto is run by... I don't know what the fuck is happening with Airbnb, but this looks like a uh, like a concierge mm-hmm. or like a hospitality company. It's probably just a dude on a moped who was what yeah. he was like an hour late yesterday uh, and called me. He said my friend like seventy times in five minutes, <laughs> which is not a sign of trustworthiness. Anyway, he came uh, and let us in, but this whole thing is run by something that calls itself the Porto Concierge, which is not an organization I have a tremendous amount of faith in. But they have like their own white label red wine. Yeah. Uh, and they left a bottle, which I do not plan on drinking. You can take it with you if you want. I mean, this is For the trip, maybe. 750 milliliters of wine needs to be spent better than an Airbnb concierge group, <laughs> you know? Like, 
I'm in fucking Portugal. I can get some great wine, I'm sure. So maybe that'll be my gift uh, to someone that I care a little bit about, but not a lot. No, and, and it's weird because in Portugal we have a lot of regions mm -hmm. for wine. Yeah. And they don't even say where it comes in the country, this uh -huh. wine. So it can be, you know, a mix of all the regions and it's like, oh, it's cheaper like that or something. Yeah, danger sign. It comes from uh, Airbnb headquarters. <laughs> all right. All right. So fuck that bottle. Let's go and get okay. the so real stuff. You never had green wine. Green wine? Yeah, it's the, the region. I've never had green wine in the home of green wine. Uh, Here's the label. Walk me through what, what we're pouring here. Now, you said that uh, un unlike our Airbnb wine, this actually has a region that it comes from that they're proud to discuss. Yeah, well, basically, well, Alvarinho comes from a really specific region. It's north of Portugal, but it's made around the borders uh, with Spain in two small towns called Monsen and uh, Melgaço. And uh, so basically this is a, a monocast. It's a white wine, it's really specific uh, white wine. But in this region they call it a, a green wine. It's a dry wine and it has a kind of fruity flavor. And it's a bit kind of sparkling, so you know. Uh, it's why it's, it's a bit different from the normal white wine that you usually drink. And, it, and that's why they call it green, because it's got a little, yeah. a little bubble to it? Bubble to it. Yeah. yeah. And I do love the, uh, I mean, they've got this like kind of on tap in bars around here. Yeah. And it's just like very bubbly. Mm -hmm. Maybe like a couple of euros for a porron or like a little, not a porron, but like a, a small flat, um, uh, pitcher of it. I mean, it's like devastatingly cheap. And well, Alvarinho is a bit more expensive. Yeah. Because it's, uh, let's say, the supreme of the green wine. This is like the, the leader. The leader, yeah. The supreme the leader of because all of our green all, wines. All with one vine in a specific place. So it's, you don't have a big region to produce this wine. So also, it's extreme good quality, but also, um, you don't have a big production of it. Where and how far away from Porto does this stuff come from? Uh, I will say around, well, I can see, uh, two hours more or less. It's up north with the border with Spain. Yeah. Actually, I'm, the grandma, my grandma that I was telling about the cooking, she comes from Malgaso. Your grandma is from Malgaso? Yeah, it's, she's from one of the towns where they used to produce, uh, where they still produce this wine. Oh, so you have an inside connection to the green wine. Yeah. Well, I, here's to grandma, man. Here's yeah, to thank her you. health and all the green wine she can she can metabolize at her age. Huh? Cheers. That's great. I like it? I'm I'm not against this at all. And no part of me is unhappy about any part of that. Good. I mean the sun is shining outside. This is a wickedly cold bottle that you got here and it's just like constant refreshment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From a wine. The problem with this is that um, it goes really easily uh, down yeah. and, you, and you drink it like it's a juice. It's the old Zima problem. And then, you know, you get to a point that uh, you drank too much and your head is already spinning. Great. That'll be at minute 32 of this podcast. Well, let's get to that. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I had uh, um, 
yeah, a combination always of jet lag, uh, maybe, you know, sort of lack of food, um, and uh, high alcohol makes for um, great podcasting, <laughs> tremendous podcast uh, conditions. So um, I would say lack of food for us, but we, I am still, uh, I'm still full from the meal that we had last night. The first is in it. Yeah, it's now 3.15 p.m. I haven't had a thing to eat, and I, it's like I had three meals already today. <laughs> there's something, there's something that's feeding me like I've got like a, you know, like an IV. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's uh, the Francesinha, which you were kind of pissed, I think, yesterday that the first, that the very first meal that I had in Porto was not the Francesinha. Like you were sort of pouting through a soup that we had because yeah. it was the food that was right there. And, uh, you know, we were going to save it. Um, why, why does everybody need to have a Francesinha as the very first thing they eat in Porto? Well, I, I don't know if it's the first time you have to, as the first meal, but you cannot miss it. The thing with yesterday was that like, come on, he came from so far, it's the first time he's in Portugal and we're not going to take him to a proper place. And we care about food in this country. So for me, it was like, uh, okay, you know, we go to a more normal place where, you know, it, it's not that the food is not nice, but uh, you can have that almost a anywhere. Uh, you could right. have that in New York, for it, example. It was kind of a, a quiche and vegetable soup um, yeah. kind of spot. Um, so, so it was more the paranoia that the schedule of like this festival that we're at and stuff will catch up with me. I will be forced to leave on Sunday not having had a Francesinha. Exactly. And therefore anger the gods and... Uh, and you will never be allowed again in Porto. <laughs> That's right. Just uh, kind of uh, destroy my good standing in the country. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about that. We, we got the Francesinha. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't your place yesterday. No. Uh, but uh, I'm a kind of... Uh, since I don't live in Portugal anymore, uh, it's difficult for me because I'm a bit orphan uh, of the, my Francesinha place. Because uh, unfortunately, my Francesinha place went a bit downhill in the last years for placing my standard. Yeah. So I'm a bit uh, kind of moving from place to place and still finding exactly the one that satisfies me the most wow as we were talking you know it's like a, a religion or you know you're your own chapel the place where you eat your own francesinha and uh, i used to have one specific place and uh yeah i i think it's because he, he got bigger and everything more pressure from tourism to serve much more and it's only two people working there yeah i feel that they had to cut some corners and I think the quality went a bit down. So so now you're a, a man without a country, a, a, a man without a, a faith, a, a weird Unitarian of Francesinos. Yeah. I mean, do you need to find a home? Do you need to... Because I, I, I noticed we were out with a group of um, people from Porto last night, and there was a lot of arguing about which place to go to. Maybe you don't have... Like, maybe you can't be as forceful in that argument as a... As a you know, someone from here needs to be until you find that one place that you'll then just sort of beat up your friends about. Yeah, you need your own, like, you know. Uh, and it, it, it's a kind of uh, awesome neighborhood. We are quite uh, here. We are a bit like kind of, uh, you know, as you saw my friend yesterday from Matuzinhos, he's like, the place where we eat, this is the place. Because it's also a Matuzinhos place. And then if you are in Porto, you will be like, no, 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 here in my neighborhood, we have this. This is, you know, we are quite... Um, 
neighborhood people. Porto, we call Porto a nation. You know, usually you have this saying, oh, Porto é uma nação. Okay. So, like, Porto is a nation because we have this kind of thing with the capital in Lisbon. You know, you are, this, I think there's this thing, well, in Spain with Barcelona and Madrid, you know. Right. And we are the second city and uh, we have this kind of rivalry and we always try to, you know, push ourselves up and, you know, we are like different from the rest. I get that, yeah. And uh, and that then translates as well into neighborhoods and everything. Probably as you have in New York with the, I don't know, Brooklyn and the Bronx and I don't know. It, it, it happens with those boroughs. I mean, I remember that with San Francisco, uh, where I grew up part of the time, just their feeling as the second city to LA made them care a lot. And it had this like San Francisco, you know, every newscast, which I think I've mentioned on this podcast from San Francisco before is like, You know, KTVU2 always starts with good morning from the greatest place on earth, you know, <laughs> just like over the top shit that people would say because in, in deep down there's like an insecurity and like yeah. uh, being that second city is a, it's a special place. So I know what about Matosinhos, which is the neighborhood we're in, which is um, uh, it's kind of just outside of Porto yeah. into the north, uh, maybe the third or fourth thing that Tiago, who's organizing this festival, mentioned to me was... If you run into the mayor, don't tell him how much you like Porto. Yeah. We're in Matazinos. He'll kill me. <laughs> tell me a little bit about Porto and, and growing up here. Well, one thing is that the city changed a lot. Uh, I say the Porto city now is not my, the city I left 16 years ago. Um, Porto is a, a lively gray city, uh, usually surrounded by fog. It's a, a lively gray city. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, lively because people of Porto live, uh, well, they wear, as you say, wear their hearts as a sleeve. Yeah, they wear their hearts on their sleeves. And uh, they are quite rowdy, lively, swearing a lot. And then you have the gray. And this the gray comes from a lot of the, not just the weather, because actually, you know, Porto is a gray city usually. Uh, but also through this architecture. And uh, if you walk in the center of the city and in the old town, you will understand that. There's a lot of shades and uh, small, narrow alleys. And, and then the color of the buildings, they are, they are dirty. It's not, well, now they are cleaning. It's why I said that the city is a bit different. Now there's not my city. You motherfuckers went and cleaned the buildings and now Eduardo doesn't even know where he is anymore. <laughs> But this, this gray thing is that it's, it's the passage of time. We have to think that Porto has all, what, around 800 years as a city. So, you know, the old buildings, they have this gray of the passage of time. And I, I, I love that. I think it, it tells so much about it. And the, I think the difference now is that it's so clean that it doesn't seem the same place anymore. Man, progress sucks. That's actually true for Porto. Like, uh, speaking of my Airbnb concierge and everything, like Porto is a city, like I think a lot of Portugal, that has, you know, in uh, in a time of economic crisis, has turned to tourism as like a major, uh, you know, a major component of its economy. And you see it here in Porto, and and you know, I think you had been talking about central Porto where you grew up in um, as a place that is now uh, dominated by the 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 wheel people the, the oh, <laughs> you got to tell me about the wheel people who who are they and and how can I avoid being one of them well first don't carry a luggage with the small wheels around the city <laughs> 
fair enough. Leave your fucking rolly bag yeah. at home. And try to be maybe a bit quiet, you know, when you move around with your luggage. Bring a backpack. I think, you know, a light backpack will be easier. Oh, but then you're stuck because, like, maybe you're one of the wheel people or the only other option is to is be a, backpack? a backpacker. I got I to gotta be something yeah. else. There's got to be another way. I did, you know, after we had uh, talked about that yesterday, I went down to central Portugal or to Porto in the center and uh, was outside having some uh, Vino Verde on tap. And immediately, like three northern Europeans came down a fully cobblestone street in the middle of the street. And the cobblestones are legit. They're not, mm -hmm. you know, they're not meant for easy... Um, uh, you know, this is no slicked tramway. And they were all rag rolling bags behind them. And it, it sounded, I mean, the clacking was like incredible. Um, mm. So who, who told you this, this, uh, this, this name of uh, the Rodinias, the uh, wheel people? Rodinias, it's basically, we call, it's, um, I, since I, a long time ago, I, I used to go to the Stashka. And Tasca is like, uh, you know, this small old restaurant, uh, you know, usually it's not even frequented, it's habitated by, you know, real <laughs> local people that they spend they're, all time there. They're not clients, they're like tenants. Yeah, they are tenants, exactly. And uh, basically, um, well, this uh, Tasca, uh, it's in the old part of town in Ribeira. And uh, it's run by two women. It's the mother and the daughter. The mother is 90 years old. She's running the restaurant for 70 years. And the daughter is around her 50-something years. And uh, I used to go there a lot. And the last time I was there, she was complaining that the neighborhood was dying. Because she was like, look to the buildings around us. There's no one leaving. When before you had women shouting from window to window and you had the clothes hanging uh, you know, now you look and they, you don't see anything. It's quite beautiful now because it's all arranged. You know, the buildings some were collapsing or something, which for me gave some charm. It's like you know going back to a van and then it's all brand new. Right. You know, in a way, it gave some charm. But uh, but the reality is that uh, the people, because of all this makeover, uh, it's they cannot afford the rent. And, so, and Ribera used to be a, a, a tough neighborhood, a, a tough neighborhood, a very real neighborhood. Yeah, um, there was some story about uh, uh, what was it? The British soccer hooligans were trying to start some shit in Ribera, and they were fighting the cops uh, off and actually winning. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, Diogo, Diogo. Who's, yeah, whose brother was a cop. No, Tiago's Tiago. brother was a cop. He was telling the story, and that the uh, the police started to lose and then all the men of Ribera came out and just started kicking the shit out of the British hooligans you know on behalf of the police I guess and and maybe uh, on behalf of the pride of the neighborhood that yeah. they weren't going to see a beatdown happen on their watch uh, I doubt that the roly people the uh, the uh, the Calling wheel it. yeah the wheel people would have done the same in part because they're probably all uh, Liverpool fans <laughs> Well, yeah, and the uh, people of Ribeira was always hardcore and tough and everything, but they were all, also the soul, I think, of the city. That's the reality. And I think the this evacuation, like, let's say, this, of people from the old town is also taking a bit of that, is losing its soul. Yeah. It's almost a metaphor of it, of these people living and how the city is transforming. And the woman was telling me that, yeah, uh, you know, this is changing so much. And uh, the Rodinhas, the 
Willie, the Roly people, the, the Roly, wheel people. I don't the know. Roly like, people, yeah. the Rodinhas. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it sounds much better in Portuguese. Uh, the name. So I will say it. The Rodinhas. Um, basically, she was saying, yeah, it's nice that they can come here because obviously they give some business. But the problem is when there's no one here, and who they gonna see? They gonna Rodinhas come to see Rodinhas. So wheel people come to see wheel people because there's no more to see other than the buildings right but the soul the social fabric of uh, what was Ribeira and the old town is ceased to exist basically and for a brief moment a restaurant like Tashka would have you know would be an undiscovered gem for your average wheel person your your yeah. your tourist with the rolly bag um as they sort of manage to have a meal or a, a drink in and amongst the locals the inhabitants of Ribera and of Tasca, but that moment passes quickly then. They get excited about it, and then, you know, people are like, man, this neighborhood is so gritty. Like, let's go there on our week-long vacation uh, and stay there. And then before you know it, Porto Concierge is running a bunch of Airbnbs oh, yeah. in Ribera. I don't know if they actually are, but someone like them. And you've got now a, a neighborhood that is just an empty signifier of what Porto used to be. Um, I mean, it's funny because I... I you know, I'm a rank and uh, abject sentimentalist. And, you know, I we did a whole series from the Mission District in San Francisco, which to me, like you're saying about Ribera, felt like the heart of the city. And when you uh, clean it up and push out the, you know, undesirables and and so on, then then you're you're losing something that you don't even know until long after it's gone. It's gone yeah. And you don't recover that. You cannot just call people and let's move in back. You will never uh, reconstruct that, yeah. that uh, neighborhood, that, uh, the atmosphere, because that's not fake. That was uh, grew up with time and uh, yeah. with generations. And uh, you, know, you cannot just let's, oh, this was a mistake and let's go back. And you know, yeah. it doesn't work like that. I, I, I feel it's like the velveteen rabbit theory of you know, sort of neighborhoods. It's like the more worn and like cared for something is, uh, the you know the more kind of ineffable and irreplaceable its value. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, somebody's making money, and I guess it's a Portuguese person. You know, the, uh, kind of depends. Kind of. Yeah, it, there's people like uh, the company. I think that they run this place where we are. Yeah, I know people that uh, rent flats and everything. But uh, w- one of the well problems we have to think that Portugal was in a big economical crisis a few years ago. And as we said, you know, the tourism was like a life saving to many families and everything. And uh, but also for f- this, all this attention for Porto and Portugal brought a lot of uh, foreign ca- uh, investments. Got it. And uh, a lot for for Portuguese is expensive. But if you ask a German, a, per- uh, a French person or English or American and you say, oh, you know, you can buy a three or four bedroom flat for 500,000 euros. Maybe for you that come from New York, it's nothing. It's like in theory, I can't afford either. But you know, in theory, yeah. it's much more appealing. And then you have cheap uh, lifestyle here because Portugal is still a cheap country. You have good weather usually. You know, you have good food. So, and uh, I think that helps as well on the the down of the lost of uh, you know a bit of the culture and you know. Everything. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, on that note, let's uh, fill get up, back into yeah. the. Vinho Verde. The Vinho Verde, the Alvarinho. And what is the difference between an Alvarinho like this and, I mean, that there's a Alvarinho from 
Spain, which I guess is maybe a, a little better known. Yeah, that's the problem with the... Well, again. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Unfortunately, and well, I don't think he's unfortunate, but uh, the reality is that um, it's not just with Alvarino, but with all the Portuguese wines, mm. is that uh, we lack marketing. We, we, we don't lack quality comparing with French wines or California or Australians, but uh, the reality we, we, we lack uh, foreign marketing for, you know, outside, but also because, you know, we are such a small country that the production is not that big. And uh, also we consume, if you go to here in Portugal, you don't see a foreign wine almost. It's almost impossible for you to find a French wine in a supermarket or Argentinian wine. You don't find it. Well, some places they are still have a, a, bit, a small section, but it's not a common thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, we have, for our size, we have a large production of wine, yeah. but not to export, except port wine and the rosé. Right. Well, that's a little fucked up. Like if you were going to, you know, be bringing a bunch of foreign wine in here, it'd be like bringing like some deli takeout to grandma's house, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> she cooked you a meal like it's here already. Like you got the good stuff. Like why, why pay money for, for the rest? But also, I mean, in particularly when you're talking about Albarino or Alvarino, like you have a very large neighbor who just kind of has much more resources to capture, you know, mental mind share uh, across uh, across the globe for their wines and their foods, some of which, you know, whether it's like conservas, the, you know, tinned seafood, or whether it's these kind of amazing fresh white wines that they have in northern Spain and up here in northern Portugal. Like you guys are, you know, you're kind of in the same area doing sort of the same thing. They're just doing it with a lot more recognition. Same happens with the olive oil and uh, well, what is the other one? Well, and the uh, Parma ham. Because we produce really good Parma ham and uh, in Alentejo, the south of Portugal, yeah, and uh, and yeah, and olive oil. We have exceptional olive oil, but you never heard about olive oil from Portugal, probably. Listen, not to bag on the Spaniards, because um, <laughs> I know you have a special. <laughs> I have a special connection. I've got friends and family, you know, our partner, all of this stuff. But I, I, I had always thought, you know, I think one of the, um, at least one of the most memorable early pieces that we published from you was about Forcados, which is uh, kind of a long-running obsession of yours, and you made this incredible work uh, of photography around them. And if there was something that just struck me as a difference between two countries on the same peninsula that a lot of people, myself included, are not great at differentiating uh, distinctly, I mean, the difference between Forcados and like real like bullfighter uh, culture in Spain seems instructive. I don't know if there's anything else we can extrapolate, but tell me about the Forcados and like and you know who they are and what they do uh, and what makes them kind of unique well um, in portugal to start with to give a, a bit of context for cada well in in portugal you cannot kill the bull in the arena that's illegal there's only one small town in the border with spain that still has that tradition that's fought over the the law and is respected and so basically they still it's, it's like the texarkana of the iberian peninsula yeah. like they they're gonna be fucking texans Exactly. Okay. All right. But other than that, it's uh, since uh, the 1850s. Um, it's in, it's not legal to kill the bull in arena in Portugal, and they had to find 18 uh, like that's a long time before PETA and you know sort of general yeah, animal welfare. But all happens because of a queen that was ruling Portugal that she didn't like to see that when she because 
uh, bullfight was always connected a bit to the aristocracy, you know, and the noble man, people and everything. Because to raise horses and bulls is not something cheap. Right. Uh, and uh, so it was from a queen, a queen that uh, didn't like how the the bullfight ended, and uh, she basically uh, outlawed the killing of the bull. She was like 150 years ahead of her time with just like a, a, a shred of human compassion for uh, for these animals. So she didn't like to see it, and she outlawed the outlaw. And they yeah. had to find a kind of replacement to finish. Let's say the party, the the bullfight. And there was already a kind of tradition of these men that they used to, on the village, grab the bulls by the horns and fight over. And uh, I, I, they, I don't know the specifics who decide then who, how they're going to do it, but the reality was that then it starts the Furcados groups and they will be finishing the bull fight. And uh, so basically what happens is that you still have like uh, the horsemen running around and putting sticks on the bull. Uh, and then, instead of killing the bull, what they do is this goes this group of men to the arena and they wrestle the bull. So the bull runs to them and they have to grab the bull uh, with their own bare hands, with no protection, nothing. They only have a waist uh, band that they put around their uh, chest to protect the internal organs. And other than that, they, it's crazy. You have 15-year-old uh, people, men, or kids basically with 15 year old and just jumping to them and to 600 kilo bulls running to you. And uh, it's quite scary, and uh, but it's quite interesting because it's a tradition, you know, that you don't have anywhere else. But we actually managed to export it to Mexico. So they now have forcado culture there? Yeah, there was a group of uh, bullfighters that came to Portugal and they were amazed with it and they decided to start their own group in Mexico. I mean, if you want to talk about, listen, we're all we're all trying to prove ourselves as macho motherfuckers, like going without a blade and or without a spear and and taking on a bull uh, who is going to remain at full strength until you tire it out with um, your your body <laughs> seems like very masculine. And at the end of the day, the bull lives. Exactly. Um, it's just, you know, maybe a little punked, a little defeated, a little tired, a little humiliated, but it gets to go and, and, and you know, eat and screw and run uh, like bulls do. Not really. It's, it's the funny thing. Well, uh -oh. not funny. The bull doesn't have a usually a nice end as well. Because uh, bulls only live after the bullfight here if they prove that they are really amazing bulls. <laughs> so I, so this they, was not they, a detail that I remembered. No. Okay. If, if they give a proper fight and they, it's like, oh, this is a remarkable bull. You will have yeah the life that you were describing. You know, he's just gonna eat and screw and reproduce himself, and he's gonna be the king with the RM around just, him. He'll be a stud. Exactly. Okay. But uh, if it doesn't prove itself, what he it does because bulls cannot return to the bull to the bullfight. Or the arena they uh -huh. only do it once because they are quite smart and they learn how how, how things work so you know they start and they, they became even more dangerous god love them they're they're smart enough to realize oh i remember this bullshit from last time. yeah so 15 men jumping on top of me to wrestle me down no thank you so basically what they do usually and now it's a law is that uh, when the bull retires from the arena they usually they kill it for stakes and everything uh-huh okay but it's a more it's like going it goes to a slaughterhouse actually it's i think it was ruled like last year or two years ago 
is that uh, the arenas have to have a slaughterhouse. Really? Right there? Yeah, because the problem, and this is now uh, with the animal rights and everything, um, is that uh, before, if you have a bullfight, let's say on a Friday or a Saturday, the bull stays closed there suffering until Monday that opens the slaughterhouse to kill the bull. Got it. So the bull's tired and he's been defeated and and bleeding and everything. Okay. And so they, people understood that that was a bit uh, not nice to the animal. So they, what they tried to do was to, okay, if we put a a facility to kill the bull in the place, as soon as he leaves the arena, they can kill it and the animal doesn't suffer anymore. We will put a link in the show notes. The, The images that you have from Forcado fights and cultures are so stunning because it's this mixture of kind of traditional where the bands that they that they you know put around their uh, their torsos to protect their internal organs the the blood which is um, as often at least in my recollection as often of the forcados themselves as it is of the bulls I mean it's like yeah. they're they're kind of I mean it's it's serious hand to hand combat and it just always struck me as a very uniquely Portuguese thing that that you have just a way with your photography of kind of bringing out. So you grew up here, but have somehow decided since 16 years ago that your life, you know, at least thus far, is not going to be lived here. How did you end up going overseas, and and why, and and where does it go from here? Uh, well, I always had this kind of thing that I wanted to be abroad, even. When I was, uh, even when I didn't travel at all, I always had this thing, I want to see the world. A lot fueled by my grandfather. Uh, He was a colonel from the army and he was an amateur photographer. And he traveled all over the world. He was a captain of police in Macau in 1952, which is quite funny because nowadays I lived there. And you're retracing the journey. Yeah. And he lived in Angola. Uh, in the time of the colonial war and basically because I I grew up with him and I remember he always pushed this thing to me and my brother but obviously influenced me much more because I I kind of took off that path and I usually say that uh, he gave me the wheels of my life which is is travel and photography and and I remember we were kids and it was like imagine the news on TV and it was like a bomb blast in Islamabad or something and he's like where is Islamabad? And we're like, oh, and then sometimes we were kids, we were still small, and we were like, okay, and then like, oh, it's Pakistan, you know. And then basically we'll open Atlas and it will show us the maps and it will say, and start teaching us about the partition of India and things like that. So that was a, a, something common that happened at, the, at his house and at the dinner or lunch table. And with that, I start, you know, I got this curiosity about the world. And um, when I was 23, I just finished my journalism degree here in Portugal. And I had set already in my mind that uh, I don't want to be a journalist and don't know about the world. Because I basi- basically never traveled before, except well, a small trip to Morocco with some friends. But uh, so I just decided to leave and go live life. And not working as a journalist. I went to do wash dishes. I drive a rickshaw in Edinburgh, you know, uh, clean muscles, uh, do phone calls like, you know, like... Uh, studies for government i did i think everything bartending you know all these things and um and slowly uh building up my career as a photographer that's what i want to do but i didn't want to do here Uh, i always look 
and I to my life and always wanted to be part of a bigger world than Portugal and so it was and you know and uh, I never took like a plan if I go one year or two years or 10 years and I want to just live here I always took my life a bit like uh, I go with the flow yeah. or be like water you know and adapt to the circumstances and what it brings throws to you opportunities just take it and see where it takes you in the end and go to the next one and things and basically yeah I, I lived in Scotland in London in Peru in Colombia I spent a lot of time in South America and uh, and now because of uh, mostly because of love I'm I moved to China so from Colombia I moved to Macau which is there's nothing to do with each other that is true very different uh, very very different destinations but uh, because of this particular reason you know i i felt well maybe life is giving me throwing me a sign and i always had this curiosity about asia uh, i i traveled in asia for one year as a backpacker uh while i was discovering the world between these odd jobs that i used to have and uh well i always had this dream one day i would like to go to asia and maybe life you know put my girlfriend in the way and i was like okay maybe this is the call for asia now there it is uh, as as you know me personally not believing in God, but definitely believing in a church of Francesinha sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> Much better church. Maybe, maybe Francesinha put this woman in your path and that's led you to Macau. I mean, it's kind of, you talked about your grandfather before. I, I knew that he had been in the army, but it's kind of interesting that a kind of colonial uh, time had led to your own wanderlust or something. Because one of the things that immediately, and we're talking very long ago now, like six six years ago, I might have first seen your work. But one of the things that really struck me was you were on the team of the people who you shot in a way. It's like it's very compassionate. It's like very humanistic work, which is not something that I, I think, you know, in my mind describes a colonial period. It feels very anti-colonial or uncolonial, the work that you do and the way that you, you know, for you to, to live and work in South America, like you wanted to, to really immerse yourself and be there. And, and, you know, the stuff that you did in Venezuela, for example, uh, during, you know, some of their many crises in the recent past is like, um, I mean, it's like, it's very, uh, it's very compassionate. It's, dangerous work but it's really like being you know being with the people in and among them which you know is maybe it's table stakes for photo photojournalism at the level you're doing it but it feels uh, it feels particularly pronounced with your work i mean fuck you and i traveled through brazil mm -hmm. uh and and uh and and worked together during the world cup so i i guess that was a former colony but you're now living in macau in a former portuguese colony what is that like for you as someone who's clearly Portuguese and, and now living in this place that had once been a territory uh, of, of Portugal, like how's that experience for you? It, truly, it's quite odd because uh, you have this reminiscent of, uh, you know, the old past and you have a lot of the community that still believes that they live in the old times and in some way they don't want to accept it. Uh, these, these are like Portuguese or Chinese, mostly Portuguese. Portuguese. Okay. But they still stay behind and they behave a bit like the old times and they, they feel that they have the right, right to live as they live and everything. And, and, and uh, you, I mean, this is something I get uh, more than enough as a, as a, as a white guy uh, in, in the US, but I'm sure you as a Portuguese person then become a vessel in which they can spit all of their weird bullshit and like <laughs> racist ideas or whatever. They're like... 
oh, he's Portuguese. Yes, Portuguese. And then I take it wrongly because I don't, I don't see the world that way. Right. And for me, it's quite odd because in a way, when I went to Macau, I was quite excited to be uh, a bit closer to home because it's been 16 years that I've been completely outside of Portugal. Well, I come here sometimes to see family, but you know, it's a minimum amount of time I pass here. And I was like, oh, for the first time I will have this a bit of home next to me. And I am still traveling and then the other side of the world. But at the same time, I start discovering that, uh, well, I don't think maybe this is that so great, you know, because uh, some things are, I can, well, I could eat a Francesinha there, but it's not the same. And you, I'm betraying my, my own church, let's say. Right. <laughs> And it's maybe it's true that the only uh, you know or the thing that travels better out of a, maybe a, a, a colonial mentality isn't the food because the products aren't the same. But no. maybe that just kind of weird bullshit. I can imagine you know for myself going to you know go to Guam or somewhere. There's places in the Caribbean also where uh, shit San Miguel Allende. You know where you'll have like. Americans who are just kind of like, I'm like, I recognize that mentality and I, yeah. I wish it hadn't followed me here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but there are those little touches, right? There's like Francesinha, there's, there's, a, there's a guy in, from Porto who's making Francesinha there's sandwiches. There's a guy from, yeah. yeah. He has his own restaurant and, and he cooks other, other uh, uh, dishes like the one that we were saying, Papert Sarabullo, that we were talking to you yesterday. Oh yeah, that's right. The blood soap. Yes. So, and, uh, so, so it's nice to have those things even, you know, but uh, some ways it's weird. It's, I think it's a, a mix of feeling. In a way, it's nice that I'm a, I have some things from home, but I don't want too much because I also, for that, I will return home. Uh, I don't want too much because I still want to feel that I'm somewhere far, 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 you know, from home and having this life experience that uh, I will not have it here. Yeah, because if it's to stay in my own bubble, let's say yeah. uh, my Portuguese bubble, well, I will come back home and live in Portugal, and that's what it took me to go outside. This was not that I was angry with the country or nothing. I just want to have a completely different experience that I will never have here. Right, and you know the fact that you're dating uh, and living with a, a woman who grew up in Macau, and you're you know you're. Um work is taking you to Hong Kong for the protests and throughout Southeast Asia, like it feels like you're getting that healthy dose. You're not, you're not sort of in some weird, um, colonial recording loop, you know, no, or like no, sort no. of like, uh, trying to find a, a slice of Portugal, wherever you can, uh, wherever you can get it. I, it, it is interesting. One of the things that you notice besides the Roly people and their unbelievably, loud wheels uh, on their suitcases is uh, the age of um, people here. It's, it feels like an older population. And in part, like that's because the you of your generation and the ones that have followed continue to leave the country. I think your brother's also overseas. And yep. um, it feels like a, a, a common story, I think, for Portuguese. Uh, it is. Uh, well, I'm a, from a bit different uh, because when I left the country, we were still not in economical crisis and I left for different reasons. Right. But, uh, but uh, a few years after, so basically I left in 2003, in 2008 came the economical crisis and I noticed that, well, my brother is one of the examples and uh, other people that uh, from my own, my generation that they had to leave because uh, there was no opportunities. And this is still happening a bit 
here. It's why the government is giving incentives to, you know, you don't pay taxes if you return back to Portugal and things oh, like that. Oh, is that true? For a year or two, I think, uh, yeah, they, they launch a program. So basically they try to attract the people that left because the reality, and Portugal was a country that all these people migrated from. Uh, you know, if you go to Canada or you go to Newark and, you know, you have these big communities of Portuguese and even in Rio de Janeiro or in Venezuela, France, you know, Portuguese, we were always kind of a, a migrating nation right. you know, people. And I mean, uh, you always had the boats. Exactly. <laughs> Since the beginning, basically, of our history, we went always out. Yeah. Uh, but this generation, well, this generation was completely, there was something that distinguished between the rest. It, that it was the first uh, generation was highly educated and you know people they had degrees and everything because no i don't think in our history no, there was so many people graduating from university as the last you know decade right. two decades who could have kind of steady jobs because that was the hopes of our parents it was like you know in their time if you have a degree you, you have your life done you get a job and the next 40 years you're going to work probably in the same company and you're going to have kids and have a house and everything but the reality is that that's not what happens anymore right that's and, a very typical broken social contract situation yeah but with a lot of force here and with this generation basically then we people realize i finished the degree and i don't have a job and I'm still living with my parents and uh, I don't have any prospects for future. So after 2008 and uh, a lot of people start leaving and looking for better uh, life, which is completely fair. You know, it happens everywhere in the world. Uh, the only difference is here is we have a, a nicer passport than the people, for example, that runs from other places. Right. Uh, so those those options to escape, you know, tend to are be much more open and easy. It's funny because I see I heard and I had a lot of arguments, especially when it was the big. Well, it's still happening. Just news don't talk about it. But the migrations from Africa coming to Europe and everything. Yeah. And I heard people here like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't open people come here. And then you're like, but but you were abroad, you know. So what's the difference? Why? Because you have a nicer passport or have a bit some more money or. Because these people, some they are also educated and everything. They are fluing wars, and you know, and uh, and I had a lot of these arguments. And sometimes I have to leave dinners in the middle because it was getting too heated the discussion. Because I I couldn't accept that uh, some people that actually had that privilege right. to go live abroad and everything, but uh, couldn't accept that people could come here as well in the same way. You know, right? For especially for a people, you know of whom you could say like one of their richest traditions is getting in a fucking boat exactly. and improving and go somewhere their else. lives, you know? And like, if you can't see the, the, the commonality between, you know, people who are literally right now getting in a fucking boat to improve their lives uh, and you can't make common cause, then you're just, you're trying very hard not to see the connection. Exactly. And it's funny because even the, the reason is basically almost the same. It's economical. Because the Portuguese now in the new generations, they were leaving is not uh, because they want to live in Sweden in the snow or, you know, they are leaving because they pay better wages there. You know? So I, actually, the reason is almost the same. Well, we're not in war, but, uh, you know, uh, I think most of the, what attracts people and makes movies because they want to provide a better life to their families. Yep. And I don't think it was different here. People were saying, OK, here I will never have a children because I cannot even afford to buy a house or rent a flat by my own, and, yeah. you know, 
and uh, I don't even get a job, so I need to go somewhere else. So I don't see the difference, you know. But I, people, I had arguments, as I said, about people that didn't saw that. I remember I was reporting, uh, I think during the U.S. elections, November of 2016, in uh, northern Germany, I was reporting on Nazis. Just went and do a story on neo-Nazis because there was a lot of them in a place I used to live and it sucked and I had to get in these conversations with people and you know you would have Germans who were trying to tell me you know what is especially like you know uh, corrosive and bad about the people who were coming into their country and and you know why it's just unacceptable by their standards but you know I'd have to explain to them like my great-grandfather was from northern Germany and he stuck his ass in like the hold of a container ship from Bremerhaven to escape economic hardship and flee completely 1000% illegally. Uh, and he landed in Galveston, Texas, had no idea where the ship was actually going to show up. And it was like, like, again, that same thing it was like, if you don't see that, and that's a, that's a fucking German, like a dude you would love because he's so German mm -hmm. sausage eating all of the stuff, you know, and that you somehow have erased that part, like a guy mm -hmm. like that from your history and the idea that Germans have also fled on boats, not for any better reason than the really great reason of trying to make a better life for yourself and your family. Um, but it can be so hard because people are just like so ahistorical, you know, mm -hmm. in those crazy ways, uh, which which is a specialty of Americans, but not limited to us, I guess. No, 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 it's not. Unfortunately. Um, so what's next for you? You are uh, you're here. You've been here for a month or yep. so, right? Just hanging out, eating as many of these. I, I feel like we might not have even described what a Francesinha sandwich is. Not yet. Okay. No. Uh, I, we uh, that would be uh, it'd be almost as bad as not eating one. Yeah. Francesinha is well, people that are not from here they usually call it a sandwich, which I think it's completely wrong. Just because he has bread on it doesn't make it a sandwich. I think I've done that uh, several times in this yeah. podcast, and I do. I'm now remembering last night you were like, and people call it a sandwich, and that's bullshit. And then I totally forgot that. So don't do what I did, people. Get this in your dome. Francesinha is not a sandwich. Why so, not? Because it's, well, it's got bread. It got bread, but you know, uh, if you eat a soup with croutons, it has bread as well, and it's not a sandwich. So <laughs> It's a bowl sandwich. Well, uh, and this is a plate sandwich? That's what you call it? <laughs> I don't know. Fair enough. Okay, good point. So it's a, think of the slice of bread as a crouton. Yeah. Okay. So basically, Francesinha, it's um, on a plate, you have two slices of bread, usually French bread. It's a bit toasted. And then inside, you have... Uh, different kinds of meat. Usually you have a really nice steak, uh, chorizo, ham, linguiça, which I cannot translate in. Linguiça is totally fine. So you, totally fine. But that's two different kinds of sausage. You got a linguiça and a chorizo. Chorizo. It depends then of the house. They, they might change. But usually you have the steak, the, the ham and the linguiça. Okay. Then sometimes you have chorizo and a few different meats. Yeah. Sometimes you have two steaks. It depends where you go as well. And then... You have the top of the bread, of the French bread, and then it's covered with cheese. And um, after the cheese, you, if you want, and you had yesterday, we put a fried egg. Yes. Oh, actually, under the cheese, you put the fried egg, and then you put the cheese on top. I did notice that, yes. And you melt slightly the cheese with the, the sauce. And the sauce is the special thing of the Francesinha. 
because uh, that's what makes it like uh, it's the bible of uh, each church let's say because uh, the sauce it's each um, each place has its own sauce they have its own secret and you know maybe if you like a bit more spicy a bit more uh, dry or you know it depends where you go because you have these all these ingredients and the sauce usually is always a tomato sauce yeah and then you can use it beer uh, as Diogo was saying yesterday I didn't know that actually that sometimes they only use the foam of the beer whiskey uh, they can make a shrimp stock and then they mix that and they made this a really rich sauce and then they pour over to the francesinha and that helps to uh, melt the cheese and then you you can eat it so thank you for that explanation i mean the the effect that you get on a single plate is um and this is where you know maybe you dispute the use of the word sandwich uh because the effect is not sandwich like in it's much more like holy fuck how am i going to finish this thing mm. it's like a mix of like that fondue dread of just like yeah. Holy crap! This is so much cheese, uh, but then also like all of the meats and it the has French fries. And then I of forgot course, to the French fries. Uh, yeah. that you have to soak in the sauce. I, listen, Portuguese are wonderful people. I I caught a lot of shit for not putting port, uh, French fries on the plate yesterday. There's just some bullying going on. I ended up putting a lot of French fries, and of course it was great. I mean, it's like the sauce is, uh, you know, at least at this place, its particular bible is to have a pretty runny sauce, and you're just kind of like. You have this giant cheese and meat and uh, bread concoction swimming in this secret, you know, ocean Washing of, <laughs> of special sauce. The house sauce. It's it, it it's interesting because I I you know I think in a place that can make a little or make a lot out of a little. This this is a feeling of like such complete abundance and overindulgence on a single plate with something that's not, it, it doesn't cost a lot in the restaurant. It doesn't, probably doesn't cost a ton to make, no. but it's just like, it's it's overwhelming. It's meant to just make the world seem like a beautiful place where you're always going to have enough to eat and it's always going to be delicious and melty. And like, I, I, I found it a totally beguiling metaphor for making the most out of a circumstance, uh, which is having an egg and bread and some cheese and meats, you know, it's, um, that is a Francesinha. And I am so glad that you were so nervous about me not getting one in my time here in Porto. I, I will not live with myself. I did send a picture to Matt. Uh, and I was, you know, because he, uh, Matt Goulding is coming in today. He, uh, texted me on whatsapp as he often does i think one of the first questions was like what are we doing for dinner <laughs> you know he's like flying internationally he doesn't want to know how to get home from the airport yeah. or where you know he's like first question what are we doing for dinner so i sent him a picture of the francesinha and i was like you know god be with you we might do this again um why so, not <laughs> why well i i can think of some like good maybe health reasons why not i can't well you didn't have the breakfast probably or lunch today that is still true. digesting the last one so, i i, I, I am if it's if you got to do one meal a day and that's your and that's your jam then uh you can live in on francesinhas then francesinhas um thank you eduardo for looking after my caloric uh bliss and uh for the incredible work that you do which I, I hope people will take a look at uh you were such a talented photojournalist but even more than that you know which i know from having worked with you and traveled with you uh you're you're what journalists should be you're a great person i appreciate it 
I'm getting red now. <laughs> I think that's and the, it's the wine. <laughs> that's the Vigno Verde. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, it's Ansel Mullins, co-founder of Culinary Backstreets, who has made Portugal his home because he's no dummy and because this is where you get the good fish and the good beer at the best price and life is good even in lockdown in this country. We drink some kind of sweet, spiced Cape Verdean liquor and wax nostalgic about the old days in Istanbul and what is next for him and Culinary Backstreets. We will meet you there.